On this episode, Search and Rescue, Being an Adventure Mom, and this is the first of our four episodes celebrating women during Women's History Month in March. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Your hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Welcome to another episode of the Almost There Adventure podcast. Today we have Krista Nash Weber. I'm so excited to have her on our podcast because this is a woman who I can honestly say gives back as much as she gets out. And she combines the two. So she is an outdoor enthusiast, but she's also giving back to the community in huge and awesome ways. And so I'm really excited to have Krista share her story and her background with us. And Krista, I'm going to let you do a little bit more of an introduction on yourself. Oh my goodness. Floor to me. Um, well, you've got my name. Um, I live in Bend, Oregon, um, and I'm a mom of two. I have a 11 year old girl and a nine year old boy. Um, and we've been in Bend for three years. Um, and prior to that, we lived overseas in Hong Kong for 11 years. Um, and we did a sabbatical year before we moved to Bend. Um, and in um, Central Oregon, I am on Deschutes County Search and Rescue um, as a member of the medical team and the um, Mountain Rescue Unit, so the MRU team. Um, and then also I'm winter qualified, so I do a lot of um, winter like backcountry skiing stuff for SAR. Um, and then I am one of the Oregon event coordinators for She Jumps, which is a national nonprofit to get women and girls into the outdoors. Matt is and a husband and like to do all the things that one does in Central Oregon. Quick question. I want to jump back to the fact that you lived in Hong Kong for 11 years, did you say? What were you doing in Hong Kong? What took you there? Um, we did kind of two tours, as, as one <laughs> could say. Um, so we moved there right, right after college. Um, I met my now husband um, when we were 19, so we were college sweethearts. Um, and we ski bummed for a year in New Zealand right after we graduated. Um, and we're supposed to move to California and kind of start our, you know, quote unquote adult lives. Um, and he, he actually had signed on to do a job with Lehman brothers. Um, and, um, Oops. yeah, so we dodged a bullet because <laughs> he ended up, um, doing yeah. a, he, he took a job at Lehman brothers and had said that he was going to take a year, um, off before starting. So he deferred, um, and he said he was going to do some finance internships. And instead we went and ski bummed in New Zealand. So he started feeling a little bit guilty about six months in and thought he should maybe do that finance internship. Um, so he, um, went to Hong Kong actually and got an internship, um, at a fund there. And we were kind of planning on starting our lives in the U S before he was going to come back to Lehman brothers. And he ended up getting a job offer, um, at the fund he was working at in Hong Kong. And we were 22, we had no responsibilities. And he said, well, I'm not going to take it unless you'd be willing to move. And I figured oh, I could do anything for a year. We have no responsibilities. And so I moved and one year turned, in, turned into five. Um, 
And then we came back to the U.S. for grad school um, for three years and then went back for an additional six um, with a little one in tow. So we kind of had two five year and a six year time there. So that's how we got there. <laughs> and we should just just to save you from Googling it, Lehman Brothers was a massive <laughs> financial institute with like, was it nine trillion? It was like nine trillion in assets. And when the yeah. crash happened in 2000, 2008, 2009, uh, it disappeared like overnight. So that was the one casualty, uh, one company like Bank of America, all these other ones survived that subprime thing that Lehman didn't. So you guys kind of dodged a bullet. <laughs> totally <laughs> dodged a bullet and, yeah. and like made such a like left-hand turn for our lives yeah. and, and for the better. We, we loved Hong Kong. Yeah. Tell us more about what you were doing in Hong Kong. Yeah. So we, so moved there at, at 22 and had, you know, a liberal arts psychology <laughs> major. Um, and so not a lot of <laughs> actual skills yet. Um, and so I ended up teaching at an international school for three years. Um, and interestingly, our school didn't have like a camp or an outdoor education program. And the kids in my class like, wait, we really want to go on camp. All these other international schools get to go on camps. And so I did some investigating and found a company called Asia Pacific Adventure that um, you could kind of outsource your camp programming to. And so we planned for our, my, I had third graders at the time. And so we went on third grade kind of adventure camp and I grew up pretty outdoorsy and, um, you know, always had dreams of maybe being like a, outward bound instructor or something, but, um, we were on this camp program and the, the, you know, instructor next to me was like, wait, you climb, do you, you want to help belay these kids? And I was like, yes. Um, and so I basically had this experience of, oh, wait, this is awesome. Like I love teaching and I love working with kids, but I want to do it in an outdoor context. Um, so after that experience, I ended up coming back to the U S for three months and doing an hour bound instructor training program. Um, and then went back to Hong Kong and <laughs> told my international school love ya, but I'm going to start working, um, with Asia Pacific adventure. Um, and so I continued the relationship with that school, but I was now working for the company that did their camp programming. Um, and I spent my whole Hong Kong career at Asia Pacific adventure doing, um, outdoor ed programming for, international school kids. And then we did corporate training programs for, um, for corporations. And were all of the outdoor adventures Hong Kong based or were they South Pacific based or like Asia based? And, you know, like how far out did you go or how much is actually in Hong Kong? There's, um, uh, you know, unknown to many, um, it's not just a concrete jungle. So we had many, many programs in Hong Kong. Um, there's fantastic climbing. There's great paddling. Obviously it's a there's like 246, don't quote me on that, um, islands as part of Hong Kong. Um, but then we operated overseas as well. So we did programs in China, Taiwan, Philippines, Thailand, um, were we in Vietnam? Um, and, and so forth. So yeah, we got, we operated throughout the region. And so we would also, we would bring kids from Hong Kong to these other countries, and then we would also work with international schools in other countries, um, bringing them to Hong Kong or bringing them to other countries. It's like, I, for example, I took, you know, a group of Korean international students, um, international school students who lived in Hong Kong. We all went to Malaysia and climbed Mount Kinabalu, you know, so we got to operate within the region. I, I have to just interject because my wife worked at an international school in Korea. 
for a year in Seoul. That's so cool. What's this? Yeah, like, what's the school? Yeah. <laughs> we'll have to chat about yeah. that. Yeah, offline. But that that was it was a great experience. So I, I you know, just that you had to be able, you were able to do the outdoor thing and be international and to you know go to experience so many places that you know, like for us, we got to travel a lot and it was to a lot of places that are hard to get to from the US. You know, it's like a 20 hour flight or more, you know, to get back over there. And so it's not like something um, that you do on a whim, you know, it's something that you have to co commit some time to and you're there. So now you get to go explore that whole area. That's, that's a really awesome. It was, it was formative for sure. And I think my, my mom, my parents, you know, obviously were sad to have us so far away for so many years, but we kind of joke that it's, it's their faults because my mom was an international flight attendant uh, when I grew up. And so I grew up with my mom flying to, you know, Tokyo or Seoul or Hong Kong. Um, I was the kid who had like, <laughs> you know, the fake Reeboks from the, you know, the, the wet market in Seoul, Korea. Um, and so, yeah, they kind of, my mom inspired a lot of that travel bug and it definitely has meant that I've had the, the wanderlust bug for my whole life. Well, we try to avoid too much politics and negativity, but did you leave Hong Kong because of all the current like political issues? Is that what, what made you decide to leave or was it just more opportunity here? We were there. So we left in June of 28, no, 2017. Um, and so we were just at the beginning of the umbrella revolution. Um, and we, you know, we were there through roads being completely cleared and, you know, protests happening frequently. Um, and my husband had an, a chance to exit from his work, which he had been wanting to do. And we knew that we wanted our kids, um, at the very least to be, in um, middle school in the US. Um, but when that opportunity to leave came up, we, we also wanted to leave Hong Kong on a high. We wanted to leave when we still loved it. Um, and so it was really hard to leave, you know, the friends that we had made over 11 years there. But um, looking back now, <laughs> we, we are really, really glad we had the timing we had because those protests, like I, I look at friends who are still there and they went straight from protests where schools were canceled into COVID. And, and they're still, you know, Hong Kong is now still on three week quarantines um, in quarantine hotels, mandatory. You can be vaccinated. You can have, you know, a thousand certificates showing negative tests and you still have to go into a hotel for three weeks. Um, and so we, yeah, we look back on it fondly, but we did have really good timing on when we left. And some of it was, some of it was a little kind of politically motivated, but some of it was more, we're both American. We wanted to raise our kids back in the U.S. And we had done 11 years of expat life and it was time. So you're coming back to the U.S. You can choose anywhere. The world is your oyster. Why Bend? <laughs> Says the person hoping to move to Bend. <laughs> <laughs> Says the person who I think should move to Bend. I'm working Says on the person you. Who, um, who, is, who is moving to Bend as soon as she finds a place. <laughs> we, so I'm from Seattle originally. Um, and so I grew up kind of in the foothills of the Cascades. I grew up in a town called Issaquah, which is like the last major town before you hit the Cascades. Um, and so I wanted something, I say I, sorry, I drove the process a little bit. My husband was... <laughs> participated, but, uh, um, 
I wanted to be somewhere more culturally Northwest. Like we really looked at Vermont, we looked at Sun Valley, we looked in the Bay Area um, and we looked at Bend and we had lived in the Bay Area for three years for grad school and um, liked it. But I felt like for raising kids there, I would kind of be in a car all the time and, you know, be going from ta- different towns for soccer practice versus different town for, you know, Spanish class. Um, and I really liked that Bend. Bend is kind of jack of all trades. It's not like a 10 out of 10 on any, on any one scale, but it's kind of an eight on 10 things. You know, it's got pretty good paddling. It's got really good paddling, really good uh, trail running, really good skiing, you know, family friendly mountain. So it kind of laid out all of these things that we love to do um, and good schools and still Pacific Northwest, but way better weather and better traffic than Seattle. <laughs> and so, you know, you move here. How did, how long did you do like any of the search and rescue stuff through the company you're working for in Asia or did, is this more of a recent thing that you just started now that you're in Bend? Um, so I like part, my training for working in outdoor education always aligned with um, some of the same skill sets that one needs to be in search and rescue. Um, but ironically in Hong Kong, there is no volunteer search and rescue. They, the Marine police or the, you know, the police would do most of that. And it's such a compact place that there's not really anywhere that's that particularly hard to access. Um, but I did get my first wilderness first responder certification on that outward bound instructor program, you know, years and years ago. So I've kept that current for 20 plus years. Um, so I have, you know, wilderness first responder, and then we always had, you know, search training, um, and tons of risk management training for working in outdoor ed and moving here. Ben is pretty saturated when it comes to kind of outdoor education. There's a thousand things for kids to do through our parks and rec is amazing. And, you know, outward bound is here and, you know, there's lots of opportunities. And so I kind of felt like search and rescue was a great opportunity to use some of those skills that I have, but actually put them to good use. Um, you know, if you have, like, we do so much risk management and outdoor, you know, education that it's not that often that you get kids that are hurt or lost, but with search and rescue, it's like, Oh, this person is hurt and this person is lost and you need to go and find them. So it was this cool opportunity to be able to use those skills that I developed over the years. I got a question about the search and rescue to kind of follow on with that. Um, it's a volunteer organization. So, you know, all of these, you know, you and the other people are volunteers. How does it, what does that look like? And how does that work on a week to week or month to month basis? I mean, are you kind of like on call certain dates or, or are you, or do they just like, if, if somebody needs search and rescue, what's the process and how do they contact who and make that decision because there's a lot of people not everyone's going to be available all the time there's an app for it there's an app for everything these days uh yeah so what happens is if you get lost or hurt um in the backcountry you would call 911 and 911 will look at your you know the problem stated um or your location and see that it's a call for search and rescue and they'll forward it on to SAR. Um, and then there's because it's under the sheriff's department, um, there are deputies that work on the um, search and rescue. You know, they kind of roll in for two year um, opportunities to work with search and rescue and they will put a page out. And obviously it's not a page, it's an app. Um, so my phone will do this really cool, like beep, 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 beep. You look at your app and you see what the mission is. Um, and so like, for example, this morning I was up skiing um, at Mount Bachelor and we got a mission for a an injured 67 year old out at 
swampy. Um, so they needed the medical team and the snowmobile team to come and assist. I was on the side of a mountain, so I could not go. Um, and so I could just ignore it. Um, but we have over 150 active members. Um, and so you will get someone else who's sitting at home eating a sandwich can say, Oh, sweet. I'm on the snowmobile team. I'm going to respond. And so you just click a button on your, on the app that says I'll be at our headquarters in 20 to 30 minutes and they assemble teams that way. So whoever responds on the app, um, so you're not necessarily on call ever. Um, and you can decide when you want to respond or not respond. Um, and it depends on what team you're on, you know, if it's a snow, I'm not on the snowmobile team, so I don't respond to snowmobile missions, but if they need backcountry skiers, um, then that's something that I would respond to. You have to do six missions a year to stay active. Yeah. So I was going to ask like, if there's a minimum requirement, um, but also what kind of training, so obviously you came into it with, you know, your WIFR experience and risk management experience, but what kind of training do you need to do to sort of become part of the team or what's that process look like? Yeah, good question. Um, and this is actually fun because it's one of my roles with our SAR unit is I do recruiting. So when you move to Bend, be careful, uh, you will be recruited by me. Um, we we bring people in um, every year um, and we call it, we, we interview. It's a, it's a long application. Um, and then you go through an interview process and you have to, because it's part of the sheriff's department, you have to take a drug test. Um, and then if you are, so for example, this year we had 77 applicants for 24 um, places. Two years ago, we had 120 applicants. So it is competitive. Um, but once you are offered a spot, you then go through the academy, which is one month of three nights a week and one weekend day um, for four weeks. So it's basically a, a hundred hours of training condensed into a month um, and everything from, you know, survival skills to wilderness first aid, to tracking, to search techniques and so on. And so they kind of give you this month where they cram it all into you. Um, and then you do a mock mission and an overnight experience demonstrating some of your skills, uh, you know, navigation and so on. And then you're legit. You get to respond to missions. So it's a lot of upfront, um, you know, it's a, it's a big upfront commitment, but then after that, it calms down. Talk, talk to us a little bit about some of the missions that you've, that you can share, you know, like that have been sort of, you know, challenging or interesting or, you know, memorable in some way. Yeah. Um, so because um, Deschutes County Search and Rescue falls under the Sheriff's Department, um, we get a lot of latitude in, in the missions that we go on. So we can do county assists, so we can go and help other counties um, on missions. And then we also do things like evidence searches. Um, so I don't know, off the top of my head, like it's one fun one is, you know, it's always fun to do an, an evidence or bones. Uh, <laughs> you know, there's often times where they'll find remains in the woods and they need to know what happened. And so they'll get us all out and we'll do a big grid search and you are looking for human remains or bones in the woods. Um, but then we also do body recoveries, which um, is, is really sad, honestly, when you do them, but it's also a beautiful way to bring closure to a family. Um, and so I did, um, it was a county assist um, on three finger jack but a climber had fallen basically off of the top of three finger jack two summers ago um and we went in and helped our neighboring county bring him down but it was this kind of beautiful experience because we knew you know he wasn't gonna have to spend the night out you know potentially you know he 
you want to try and get them, get the person down to their family so they can, you know, make plans for next steps. Um, but it was this gorgeous, clear night and that I can't remember the name of it, but there was that crazy comet that was coming over central Oregon. And so we got to see the comet and we were out all night, you know, bringing this person back to their family. And it was really sad, but it was also this kind of you know, he's a climber and his, his final resting place was a really, really gorgeous spot. And then you have like crazy fun ones where I don't know if you guys remember from the news, but I think it was two years ago we had, um, there was a, a hiker that fell at Smith rock and he fell something like 300 feet. And we had to go in and basically, um, rig a system to lift him up the whole cliff band, um, to the top. And then we had to then wheel him all the way down misery Ridge, um, which is a really steep gnarly trail, um, to be heavily backed out. Um, and that took like 17 hours. So that was a really exciting one to be a part of because we really, truly did save a life. We had a, um, you should look at, look up the book, but there's a recent interview we did with Moose Mutlau and he's a family liaison officer. And so he works with search and rescue. He liaisons between the families and search and rescue, um, in situations like, um, gentlemen, you can probably remember the name of his book. It's escaping me right now, but, um, yeah, it was really interesting. He talks about that role, right. Of like kind of facilitating in between search and rescue teams and families, which is really cool. But that brings up a really good point. And it's something that I'm proud is happening in our industry is the power of kind of psychological first aid. And that's something that's been a really big focus, I think, in the industry. And, and we're trying to adopt it um, in, in our SAR unit is part of our academy training is not only do we need to be providing, you know, actual first aid, you know, for broken femur, but also, you know, people are, can be really traumatized. It's kind of, you know, oftentimes the worst day of someone's life. You know, if you're coming down South sister with a broken leg in a litter, like you're not having a good day. Um, and so really attending to that person, um, psychologically making sure they're okay, making sure that they have some agency in their rescue. And that, that applies to families as well. So, you know, if you're speaking to family members or people who are with someone that's, you know, having that experience, you know, they're, they're hurt or lost or broken, like really making sure that you're attending to people's mental health needs as well. Well, so we've talked about the financial collapse, political disorder, and search and rescue. Let's let's cheer things up a little bit and tell us about she jumps. That sounds like an amazing, <laughs> positive thing to talk about. I also want to talk about your kids because you're yeah. raising two little crushers. So um, yeah, so let's cover both of those. Yeah, and we just talked to Ingrid. We interviewed Ingrid, who will probably be on before you, and we're going to be plugging your um, the she jumps Nordic weekend. So which Chris is involved with. So it's all full circle, friends. It's all, it's, it's all full circle. Yay. I'm so glad that you talked with Ingrid. Um, she is rad. We, yeah, just, so she jumps is a, is a and Severia, you know, Claire, um, who's the founder, um, but it is a national nonprofit. Well, also in Canada, um, that aims to get women and girls or anyone who identifies as female, um, into the outdoors. And we're just all about, um, providing better access, um, providing scholarships and creating opportunities and creating programs for people to get outside. Um, so COVID was a bit of a downer, um, for she jumps because, you know, you're, trying to bring people together. Um, and so we're just kind of getting back now on our feet in central Oregon and creating some more events. Uh, so just this morning I was up at bachelor cause we had a group of women going out on an avalanche, um, an avalanche, kind of like a mini avalanche training day. And ironically, 
the need for more females in industry was highlighted for us because there's literally one female avalanche educator and apprentice. She's an AMGA apprentice ski guide with Oregon Ski Guides. So Allie Miles is the only female I, for sure in Central Oregon and I think possibly in Oregon. Um, so she took a group of women out this morning um, and we met them, you know, at the mountain and gave them giraffe acorn stickers. That's our little logo. Um, it looks like a giraffe with a unicorn horn. I'm sure you've hopefully seen it around town. I'll send you all one. Um, but so, yeah, she took them out. Um, but it does highlight like there's there are boundary or, you know, barriers for women to get into things like search and rescue or ski guiding or ski patrol. And so we're just trying to create awareness um, and opportunities, particularly for, for young girls who might want to go into those career fields because um, there's not enough females out there. It's all kind of still a little bit brotastic. So we're trying to change that. No offense, Jeff and Jason. We love, we love yeah. men. <laughs> None, None taken. <laughs> None at all. <laughs> It's not hard to notice that almost everyone looks like us outside or yeah. over 20 years ago. Yeah. Now it's, it's gotten better. It's, it's 20 got, years ago, everyone looked like us. So it's it's nice to, to see some other faces and other types of people enjoying it. So so important, like before we talk about your kids, that like young girls, right? And that's sort of the whole she, she Jones philosophy is that if you have these young girls who are being empowered and realizing like this is an option and we can do this too, that that's feeding into those you know, hopefully working down those barriers and stereotypes and creating a whole new generation of little crushers that are going to come and be like, what barriers? There's no barriers for me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, tell us a little bit more about your kids and what it's like to raise two adventure kids. Oh, my gosh. Um, it is equal parts crazy and wonderful. Um, I think, gosh, I don't know. I, I, I think, you know, what's beautiful. So. You had a woman on your um, Bend Organ retreat and her Instagram handle is She Colors Nature. Um, mm -hmm. And she does these amazing posts on her Instagram account and her social. And she works with REI a ton, but she, she said it best. And I like, this is kind of my favorite little mantra to think about is she says that she mothers best outdoors. And I think that's, that's kind of where I fall to. And I find that I... And it kind of takes to, I find I'm a better mom when I have had, you know, I've done some exercise, I've gone for a run or I've done yoga or I've, you know, gone for a morning ski or something. Um, and, you know, part and preview to that too, is I also find that my family kind of family's best when we are having an adventure outside. Um, and it's one of the times where we can kind of just like, I don't know, be in nature is kind of a healing and just peaceful place. Um, and my kids kind of <laughs> calm down and they also, you know, they're total little groms. They're growing up in a ski town. And so they both, you know, are on skis and bikes and climbing all the time. I'm actually driving to Portland today. My daughter, um, is a big climber and she has regionals, um, <laughs> tomorrow in Portland. So she's all nervous for that. Um, and then they have to ski race on Sunday. So it's, it's a lot, but I think it's going to keep my kids out of trouble. Um, cause they'll be always busy and there's tons of adventures to have versus like, you know, playing video games and I don't know, smoking pot behind the Wendy's or something. <laughs> <laughs> so your kids from, it seems as though they're fearless based on Instagram and posts and whatnot. How do you balance having kids who are pretty fearless and, you know, your son and his mountain biking and, you know, learning how to 
now I like do ski jumps and like tricks and stuff like that. How do you manage, you know, the fact that they're fearless, but as a mom, you're wanting to protect them and like, you know, not projecting your fears or concerns on them and just sort of embracing their adventurous spirit. That's a really good question. And it is a, it's kind of a balancing act. I think one thing we really try and emphasize with our kids is, is kind of that risk assessment mindset and not being, not being afraid to try things, um, but being really careful about assessing the risk and looking at what things you can do to mitigate, um, any potential disaster, you know, so we have a bridge in our neighborhood that teenagers love to jump off of. And so we talk with our kids like, well, what's something you should do if you're ever going to jump off this bridge, which is illegal. So no one should be doing it. But, um, and they're like, well, maybe we should dive down with goggles first and see if there's any down trees down there, or maybe we should have someone spot and make, you know, so really disgusting, you know, same for, you know, doing ski jumps. Like you should always have someone spotting for you and be looking up the mountain to make sure no one's coming and check the landing. And so we're still encouraging our kids to take risks, but to be really, uh, really careful about how they assess that risk and how they can, <laughs> try to keep themselves in one piece in the process. I, I think that there's a, kind of a, the pendulum is swinging away from sort of helicopter parenting a little bit, at least in certain places, because, you know, for a long time, everyone was so overprotective of their kids that they didn't learn to how to like assess risk and set boundaries for themselves. And, you know, they have, um, I remember when, when my kids were young, there was an adventure park where they had a big fence around, uh, like a wooden fence all the way around this thing. And adults weren't allowed in, like the parents weren't allowed in. The kids could go in there and there were hammers and saws and there was rope and there was all kinds of things that you could really hurt yourself with. And the, the fact of the, you know, the fact was, is that they were careful because of that. They're like, well, I don't want to like, you know, hurt my thumb with this hammer. So I'm going to be careful, you know, and they learn how to like assess the risk and, and to, um, you know, exercise caution and in a healthy way. So I, my hat's off to you. Hopefully it's going to swing that way more. I mean, I think that that's a really good thing for kids to be able to learn, you know, especially when you're talking about outdoor activities, if everything is, is sort of supervised and coached and, you know, controlled, then they don't get the chance to explore that part of them. Well, I think it's so funny because that brings up, I, when we were in grad school, I had the opportunity after, after I um, finished school, I worked um, at a big university's outdoor adventure program. And I will never forget, we had a freshman in college. So this kid's 18 and we did these pre-orientation backpacking trips into the Sierra and he, um, couldn't find his way to the field where he was supposed to meet all his, you know, future new friends to go on this backpacking trip. And the head of outdoor education gets a phone. And this is, you guys, this is Stanford university. So these are smart kids. He gets a phone call, um, from a mom saying, I'm sorry, my son can't find his way to Robley field. Can you please, can I give you his phone number and you can call him and, and help him. And we were both, so I was the assistant, you know, outdoor education um, person. And we looked at each other and we're like, there are so many ways this kid, he could um, Google it. This is the land of 
um, smartphones. He could walk into any building on campus and ask someone for directions. He could look at a map. You know, there was, it was just this kind of, it highlighted for me the importance of trying to raise an adult. And obviously my nine and 11 year olds are very far from that, but I want them to have that skill set of, okay, how can I, what resources can I use to solve my problem versus having my mom call (laughs) and figure it out for me? So, you know, sometimes, now that being said, uh, Jeff, my son has been in the ER four times um, with various cuts and, you know, broken things. So we're not totally there on the uh, properly assessing risk in our house, but we're trying. I think that's the perfect example of the difference between smart and intelligent, right? Because you obviously have to be reasonably intelligent to get into Stanford or very wealthy, probably. I don't know. But, uh, <laughs> but you know, smart is a completely different thing, right? You know, I guess it's sort of the overreaction from all the latchkey kids, right? Like like the lack of, stru- I think the lack of structure was great for me. And don't feel too bad. I broke every bone in my body at least once as a little before I was 18. So <laughs> just kids, you know, you're fine when you, you know. <laughs> I, I keep breaking bones yeah. and I'm yeah. almost 60. So, you know, <laughs> um, you know, this isn't really, uh, this is a little bit tangential, but um, what, are, what are your thoughts about technology is, as being sort of the same kind of thing? You know, it's like, it's a crutch in some ways for a lot of us. It's like how many people don't know how to read a paper map and, or a topo map, for example, to navigate and know, oh, this is going to be uphill or downhill or steep or, or, you know, a cliff and, you know, or to, to find their way across town without looking at, uh, you know, their device and the maps. And, you know, that's kind of a similar thing to what you were describing with the parent, you know, it's like, we're so reliant on the technology. And as, you know, speaking of from a, a search and rescue standpoint, you, you mentioned, oh, you can call 911. Well, that's great if you can call 911. And a lot of times, if you go out far enough, you have no cell service. And so you need to have ways to kind of figure things out and problem solve that don't rely on the device that we all carry around in our pocket all the time. Yeah, we definitely emphasize that with, you know, people who go on, you know, these awesome hut to hut trips and, you know, all the other things you can do in Central Oregon. But I don't know, your phone battery can die, especially in the cold. You know, if you don't have extra batteries, your your Gaia or your, you know, Caltop or whatever you use on your phone, like that's only good and as long as your phone works. Um, and so, yeah, really emphasizing, you know, throw that map in and know how to use it. Um, it is still, a, you know, an essential skill set um, that I'm actually, I'm terrified. You guys, I'm doing a an adventure race. Um, this may called expedition Oregon. And I too have fallen victim to using technology and relying on it too much. Cause you know, I can get around just fine with, with my guy and with my, you know, Garmin watch, but this adventure race is all map and compass. You're not allowed any technology and I'm realizing how rusty I am. So it's kind of back to basics for training right now. And it is, it's hard, especially at night. <laughs> As a search and rescue person, um, sort of, leads into it. That's what we were just talking about. Uh, what are you, what are the things that you see consistently that the mistakes that people make that lead to you having to rescue them? Like what would be the top couple things, your recommendations to not have to ha- call you to rescue them on their cell phone that they hope have batteries? Yeah. Um, well, the one I just mentioned, so number one, having the ability to, to navigate, um, either having some 
reliable backup on, on your phone. So having battery packs and knowing how to use your phone navigation system, um, or having a paper map with you, uh, for one thing. Um, we also get people, a lot of times it's out of towners that kind of forget how easy the weather can change in the mountains. And so, you know, we had, we had some people out last I think it was September, um, where they were out hiking and had, you know, shorts and t-shirts and it started snowing and they got caught in a proper snowstorm up at Camp Lake. And we, we came in and basically their main complaint was that they were really cold. <laughs> um, and so making sure obviously to always have spare layers for, for weather that may not even be predicted. Um, cause you just never know in the mountains if, you know, a storm might come in or it might snow or rain on you. And then I think too, sometimes the ability to know when to call it quits. <laughs> um, we get people a lot of times who stay on the move and they keep, and, and in some respects that's smart cause you want to stay warm, but we had a lost snowshoer a few weeks ago that was following um, a, a wrong compass bearing and he just kept going and he was snowshoeing further and further west and he thought he was going east. And so things like that, where sometimes it's better to just stay put and hug a tree, you know, like we tell kids. Um, and it's a lot easier for us to find you if you're not a moving target. So, yeah, I mean, basically bringing the 10 essentials and being prepared to potentially spend a night out if you have to. And I think the number one thing that people don't realize and, you know, this happens everywhere, but it takes a long time for us to come in. Um, and so if you've got, you know, a sprained ankle on the top of South Sister, or you're calling, you're calling search and rescue members in and they take minimum 30 minutes just to get to our headquarters. And then we're gathering vehicles. We're getting the supplies we need. We're getting the first, you know, first aid and the litter and any ropes and things we need. And then we've got to hike in, um, you know, sometimes we can get a helicopter um, ride in, but oftentimes it's hours and hours before rescue can get to you. So being able to, if you are injured, to kind of hunker down for those hours while you wait um, makes you a lot more comfortable while you wait. Yeah, I think one of the things that I see is a common problem or I hear is a common problem with search and rescue is summit fever. You know, so like you talked about South Sister, if somebody's you know on their way up South Sister and it's taking longer because maybe there's there's some more they're hitting more snow or whatever, and it's just slowing them down. But doggone it, they're going to make that summit. And you know, never mind that the sun's going to be setting at 430 or whatever. I think that that's an important lesson for everybody is to, you know, make sure that you have a turnaround time. They're like, hey, if, if we're not there by, you know, one o'clock or whatever the turnaround time is, we turn around and, and we'll come back and try again some other time. And in the second half is when you're tired, when you're exhausted, when you've like depleted your resources, usually, you know, so yeah. the, you know. Well, the glory may seem like it's in the in the summit or the peak. The glory really should be getting back to your car at the trailhead. And, it, and you always think that, oh, I'm going downhill. It's going to go so much faster. And it never does. It almost takes about the same amount of time as it does to go up. <laughs> the glory is in the cheeseburger and the beer after, not in the summit. So, you know, and you earn it even if you turn around. I know that's like, you know, what Edmund, Sir Edmund Hillary and Tenzing Narge, like, they, they get the first real Everest, Everest summit because they got back down again. <laughs> um, I think, too, the other thing that that we're seeing a ton, and this was why, like, 
seeing those women off on the avalanche course this morning, you know, warmed my heart is we see a lot of people hard charging in the backcountry that aren't potentially ready or, um, you know, we, I see people. So we have a local mountain called Tumalo, um, which is super fun to backcountry ski because it's accessible and you can park right at the bottom and, you know, go up and down in a couple hours, but people often do it with no, shovel, no beacon, no probe. Um, and so I think people get a little ahead of their themselves and, you know, Oh gosh, I saw this awesome TGR movie. I want to go and, you know, ski broken top or South sister, but they don't really have the avalanche education. So really making sure that people are, you know, have the education that they need to safely travel in the backcountry and make those choices to exactly like you got to come you got to come back down and it's all fun and games until, until you get caught in an avalanche. So yeah, things like that. We're making sure that, um, people are, are making, you know, having the education they need and the supplies that they need to travel safely in the backcountry. Yeah. I mean, or even, you know, there's avalanche danger, there's like objective dangers like that. Right. But then there's also just accidents. Shit happens. Like, you take it like, just like you take a bad turn on a ski hill, you take a bad turn in the backcountry. But to your point, the consequences and the time and, you know, all of a sudden getting out is hours and, you know, it could be a day, you know, it's like, yeah, everything is just so much more amplified as far as everything that comes after the same fall that could happen front country versus back country. Um, does search and rescue, do you guys do any sort of public education or is that a sort of proactive education, something or preventative education, something that you all have capacity or bandwidth to do? Yeah. So we would particularly like during our recruiting season, we had volunteers stationed at REI on busy weekends, um, asking questions and, you know, talking about some of the things we carry in our packs and, you know, 10 essentials and all of that. Um, and I know we get a lot of, um, support from local, there's various local, um, you know, outdoor shops and, you know, breweries that support us. And so for example, you know, 10 barrel, um, supports us a ton and we're going to do some Tuesday night outreach where they give members of search and rescue, you know, free beer and pizza, and we'll be there with tables set up, you know, talking about this is a beacon and a shovel and a probe and kind of educating, um, the public, you know, cause everyone comes down into town, um, after, you know, ski day and, you know, cheers about all their adventures. But so we're thinking about going into the public more to just extend that outreach. Um, and then I have, I have a dream of marrying my two, my two passions, um, and doing a, she jumps program, um, for young girls. Um, also my son will be very annoyed. So I would love to do a family program, but, um, and marry kind of a, she jumps and do a junior search and rescue program where kids can come in and do kind of a mini navigation course, you know, orienteering course and do some basic first aid and, you know, maybe do a short repel and kind of see what it's all about. Um, and so we're starting to look to do more outreach in that respect as well. It's fun. I think I, obviously I acknowledge the, extraordinary amount of privilege that I have to be able to, you know, do these two very time consuming, um, volunteer gigs. Like I'm so thankful that, you know, I'm in a position to not have to have a nine to five at this stage of life. Um, and so, yeah, it's been super fun to get into the community here and, and be able to give back. Um, and, and obviously, bring my kids into the mix too and start those family adventures and kind of plant a seed for, you know, future 
future lifelong hobbies for them. It's funny. I, I was a diver um, growing up and in college, I was a gymnast and then a diver. And it's not exactly a lifetime sport. It's not like I'm going to go out and do some bounces on the board at the local pool. Um, and so I love that my kids are growing up with these kind of lifetime sports. Like you can mountain bike and hike and ski into your eighties. So I'm hoping they'll be able to. And me. What does a day of just pure fun look like for you? Kristen's day of fun, like not rescuing anybody, not, you know, educating anybody, not mothering anybody. What does a day of fun look like for you? Oh, well, I will tell you for my birthday last year, this is the beauty of Central Oregon. If anyone's thinking of relocating, um, my birthday's in June. Um, and so I met with a big group of friends um, and we met up at the mountain and we skinned up Mount Bachelor on skis in June um, to the top and then skied down and had our mountain bikes on the car. And then we um, mountain biked from Winoga, which is a local, you know, mountain bike starting area. We, we mountain biked basically back to town with our, with the kids, the kids didn't do the skin part cause they're, they're not quite that hardy yet. Um, but then we mountain biked back to town, um, and then had, <laughs> this is what's so awesome. Um, had quick drinks, um, at a fun little spot downtown, um, and then got on kayaks and paddled to, um, a restaurant called Sen. I don't know if you guys have tried that in Bend, um, but it's this yummy little noodle place on the river. So you can kayak or stand up paddleboard and park your, your boats kind of just on the river bank and then walk up and have, have dinner and then paddle back, um, with a, you know, a refreshment on your board, you know, that you pick up from a local, a local spot on the river. So that, that was like dreamy. That was, that was a super fun birthday. Um, so <laughs> I just like that to play outside. Like that's my happy place. <laughs> yeah. That sounds awesome. There is a annual race. That's something like that. Isn't there in Bend where they have like the ski and the mountain bike and a run or a paddle or something. It's like all of those called pole pedal paddle it's super fun you can do it as a team so everyone does part of it or you can do the whole thing yourself individually and it starts with a downhill ski from the top of bachelor um, to the bottom and then you put on your skate skis and you do a five mile skate ski loop and then you get on your road bike and you ride down from mount bachelor to town where you then ditch your bike and you do, a, I think it's three miles, might be five miles, um, trail run. And then you hop in a, a boat craft of your choice. So it can be a canoe or a kayak or a stand up paddleboard and you go down river and then up river on this course. And then you sprint to the finish at um, the Bend Amphitheater, which I now I think it's no longer Les Schwab. It's now the Hayden Holmes Amphitheater, but yeah. it's a concert venue. Yeah. Yes. Um, and yeah, and it's so fun to be able to then look back at the mountain and think, whoa, I started there and now I'm here. Um, and it has been on hiatus due to COVID for two years, but it's back this year. So in May, super fun. Are you going to do it? I sadly can't this year because I'm going to be on that crazy six day adventure race. Um, suffering and not sleeping <laughs> so <laughs> the collisions of adventures oh what a it's a it's a terrible problem to have <laughs> it is it is so many things to, to do 
Yes, but I just have to tell you one thing. You know what other adventure I have coming up is my six pack of peaks. Central Oregon. Oh, I signed up yesterday. Oh wow! Awesome! <laughs> Yay! <laughs> oh, that's great. So uh, we will I see you on the trail. Yeah. <laughs> there was two peaks on there that I have never heard ever done. So I'm so excited. So probably I'm going to guess which ones they are. I'm going to guess it's Sutton Peak in the Ochoco Mountains and Maiden Peak, which is down south of here. So um, and uh, Maiden Peak we did not have in the challenge last year and but when we we did it the year two years before that and the people who did that said it was one of their favorite um hikes in the whole series so um and we have there's two different routes you can take up it it's it's you know much more much less crowded than any of the peaks around here in bend so i think you'll enjoy it and maybe we'll see you on the trail maybe we can set something up and do a hike yeah cool please i'm excited yeah uh thank you so much for joining us krista this has been amazing and i don't know if there's any resources that you want to share or where people can find you um yeah where would people find you and what are some of the top resources you want to share with folks listening yeah i think um primarily she jumps um definitely she jumps operates throughout the u.s um and so please do join our newsletter um even you know if you're not if you're not female or female identifying um that's fine i'm sure you have females in your life um that might be interested so forward it along and um, think about you know contributions financially because um it's all about providing access um, to you know people who wouldn't typically be able to afford adventures, and we try and make them all affordable or free. So yeah, she jumps um, for sure. And then you know the search and rescuer in me says check those local websites for you know ten essentials, making sure you've always got <laughs> what you need to potentially spend a night out if you have to if you run into trouble in the in the backcountry. We'll put links to all of those into yeah. the show notes. So when this goes live. It'll, it'll be there for everyone to get to the research page. Yeah. Thank you so much. It's been so oh, much yeah, fun talking you. to you. Yeah, this is really interesting. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the almost there adventure podcast on Facebook. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Mirror Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out the show notes on our website, almostthereadventurepodcast.com. Coming up next on our second episode of our annual celebration of women in the outdoors during Women's History Month, we talk about running an outdoor resort with Mulberry Gap co-owner Kate Gates. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.